Section 19 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 18. Causation in History. In this chapter, I shall make an additional special and minute analysis of one period already covered in order to show that authorities do corroborate each other and that out of a number of causes, one case stands out preeminently. I shall then discuss other methods of unravelling historical causation and illustrate the need of a more exact and graphic representation of social and intellectual class differences, and at the same time offer a new hypothesis for the rise and fall of the ancient Oriental monarchies. From 1415 to 1619, the Duchy of Brandenburg maintained an equilibrium or gained slowly and steadily in importance under a line of Hohenzollern rulers either equal to or exceeding the average nobility and tenacity of purpose. During those two centuries there occurred no period of decline, nor was there a sovereign classified as weak. From 1619 and 1640, a sharp decline separated a strong reign, 48 years, 1640 to 1688, from another reign of weakness, 1688, 1713 after which the grand expansion commenced, which culminated in the Prussia of Frederick the Great. Here then being a well-ploughed historical ground, and in comparatively modern times, it is therefore an excellent field for deeper and more searching investigation, for practical illustration as to the possibilities of measuring and verifying historical causation. The first of these periods of decline occurred during the rule of the elector George William, 1619-1640, the regeneration occurred under his son, the great elector. The second decline corresponds to the reign of Frederick I, and the second generation parallels the rule of Frederick William I and Frederick the Great. At the outset, one must try to gain as clear a proof as possible of the real mental and personal traits of George William, the occupant of the throne during the first of the debacles. Perhaps George William was unjustly blamed for a stroke of fate. Perhaps because the times were hard, the king was despised by his contemporaries, while modern criticism has reversed the verdict. Perhaps the best historians will today be found to disagree among themselves. As a matter of fact, historians do not take any other view than that George William was weak, though some, like Volt and Berner, try to gloss over his failings and especially make a point of the difficulties of his position, owing as it did during the Thirty Years' War. It will pay to look clearly into the question of George William's mentality and his relation to Prussia, of the 17th century, for this prince may be taken as an example of a typical weak sovereign, placed the minus grade on the basis of the unusual statements. For this reason, all the different authors are here quoted at the point where they make the most direct statement. Mirrorhead, in the first European Britannica, says, This unfortunate prince may be described as the first utterly incompetent ruler of his line. The due allowance must be made for the extreme difficulty of his position. A. W. Holland, in the 11th edition of the same work, says that George William proved a weak and incapable ruler, according to Tuttle. To the vacillation, the duplicity of this prince may be ascribed the inglorious part which Brandenburg played in the great religious struggle. A timid and capricious prince, Price gives the same idea. He had neither nobility of ideals, nor the sense of conscience to lead him aright through great disasters. His nature was superficial. Pearson's comment is much the same. The times demanded a prince of all ruggedness, and George William's nature was weak. Voigt, 
who does his best to exonerate George William's grandson, Frederick I, another inferior Hohenzollern, and is in general not in the least inclined to make harsh criticisms, shows by comparison with the high praise which he bestows on several other members of the family, the slight regard which he has for George William. The reign was one of the most unfortunate and harmful for the country, the mark which since the end of the 15th century has been conserved for more than a hundred years in profound peace by the wisdom of its princes, was dragged into the abyss of misery under George William. The cause for this has often been ascribed to the elector himself and to his chancellor, Adam von Schwarzenberg, without considering if the circumstances of the times were not more to be considered than the men themselves. One thing at least is incontestable, and that is that George William's lack of energy increased the evil. The position of Berner is much the same. He is luck to say a word against the sovereign, yet he cannot say a word in his favour. He puts it in this way. In truth, George William, all the same, lacked the Hohenzollern energy and decisiveness. None of these histories, it should be noted, attempt to credit George William with any ability whatsoever. They do not mention ability in any of its forms. Thus the picture is clear enough. Even if the last two writers had been alone consulted, the attitude they display towards George William in comparison with their estimate of other Hohenzollerns would result in the same grading. That is, the great elector, Frederick the Great, Frederick William I, Frederick of Brandenburg, died 1440, and Albert Achilles would enter the plus grade. Eight or ten of these others would go in middle or doubtful grades, and George William and King Frederick I, died 1713, would just as certainly find their way into the minus class. This does not prove that George William was weak, but does prove that the stand historians agree in so placing him. Furthermore, no change has taken place from the opinions of contemporaries by whom he was held in just as little esteem. Now as to whether all authors may not have been very unjust, and the man called weak because combinations of circumstances made him necessarily unsuccessful, this is possible, but is extremely improbable. Combinations giving rise to great difficulties had occurred in the lives of the members of this same family many times before, and did occur many times afterwards. Yet these princes were not regarded as non-entities, but were valued and praised for one trait or another. Some were considered vigorous, able, masterful, and some merely shrewd and thoughtful, some quite plodding, or their virtue and learning came in for recognition where the mental qualities failed to arouse enthusiasm. Frederick the First Elector had great difficulties to overcome at the very start. His successor, Frederick the Second, had to deal with the turbulent cities and to balance them Mecklenburg, Saxony, and hence, one against the other. Albert Achilles had to master Pomerania and Mecklenburg, while the affairs of the empire occupied his attention at the same time. His successor, John Cicero, did not have to face any great problems. He was a prince living in an entirely different period from George William, yet history places him in nearly the same inferior class. John Cicero was, however, a man of learning, and therefore gets some appreciation over and above George William. Joachim I may be said to have lived in comparatively easy times. He is pictured as narrow-minded and plodding and a shrewd politician. Joachim II lived during the period of the Reformation. The dates of his reign are from 1535-1571. He found serious complexities enough in the urgent religious questions of the time, and had he not been a clever politician and gained by the best of intentions, might have allowed his country to lapse into civil war. 
John Sigismund, who reigned from 1608 to 1619, also had the religious entanglements on his hands, and he also dealt with them very successfully. More significant still, George William's son and successor had all the difficulties to overcome, which beset the father. Yet this man not only brought the country out of its utter demoralization, but left it on the high road of prosperity. The sudden change is alone consistent with the view that the real trouble lay in lack of personal leadership from 1619 to 1640, and the subsequent events which followed the death of the great elector only the more certainly confirmed the idea. During the leadership of the great elector, practically everything was in a flourishing condition. The nation was respected abroad and wonderfully active and progressive within its own, now considerably expanded territory. The great elector was only twenty years of age when the death of George William, distracted and disconsolate, left him his organ task. He carried it through to a wonderful completion. A definite policy was at once established. George William had no policy at all, unless his actions as described by Carlyle can be called a policy. Where the titans were bowling rocks at each other, George William hopped by dexterous skipping to escape share of the game. George William expected to remain in neutrality, but it was a helpless neutrality, and Brandenburg became crushed between Denmark and the Empire. While the eastern possessions, Prussia, fell between the upper and nether millstones, Sweden and Poland, the contestants in the Thirty Years' War had injured Brandenburg more than they had injured each other. The new elector sought neutrality, but it was to be armed neutrality. The first thing to be done was to get rid of the half-hearted Chancellor, Schwarzenberg, who had been foolishly and obediently playing into the pocket of the Emperor. The elector then halved the anger of the Emperor, and gave way temporarily in favour of Sweden, but with a shrewd eye, and with the provision that the Swedish troops should be withdrawn from the electorate. By first turning his activities towards the army, by directing every effort to giving himself a weapon with which to back his claims, and command quest and attention. He was soon able to play one power against the other, to gain time in which to restore the wasted and scattered resources of his country. This was done so successfully that in eight years at the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, Prussia was able, by its mere military potentialities, to demand and receive excellent compensation. The satisfactory results of the Treaty of Westphalia could not have been carried through without an efficient army. This army, which had become one of the best organised in Europe, obviously came to being under the personal management of the Great Elector. The reign of the Great Elector forms one of the most signal instances in history of the conquest of diverse circumstances by personal energy and merit. At the death of Frederick William, the new North German state of Brandenburg-Prussia was a power that had to be reckoned in all European combinations. Inferior to Austria alone, among the states of the empire, was regarded as the bead and patron of German Protestantism. Its area raised to 43,000 square miles, its revenues multiplied fivefold, and its small army nowhere surpassed in efficiency. The Elector had overthrown Sweden, and had offered a steady and not ineffectual resistance to the encroachments of France. Most historians have acknowledged the importance of royal and individual leadership in Prussia, especially at this point in the story. Naturally, they notice the right-about face which conditions take just here. The truth is more obvious than usual, but this is simply on account of the unusually contrasted types of character. The causative importance is not any greater here than elsewhere, it is merely more apparent. Granting for the moment that the favourable reversal in the nation's fortunes rose from the change in leadership, it is profitable to speculate on a further set of questions concerning this common use of the word, if, 
The failure of the reign of George William, 1619-1640, has not unnaturally been ascribed to a number of causes, either isolated or combined. They would have seemed futile to discuss the question of ifs in history, and to say that if such and such an event had not taken place, then such and such consequence would not have followed. It may be of some clarifying value to show that there are probable and patient ways in which an if may be interpolated, as well as other ways in which such speculation is vague and vain. Among the excuses usually offered for the first Prussian setback are 1. Weakness of the Chancellor Schwarzenberg 2. The Chancellor's devotion to the Catholic faith 3. The inefficiency of the estates 4. The jealousy and corruption of the ministers and advisers who surrounded the elector 5. The elector's own poor education and 6. The general difficulties of the Thirty Years' War Of course, actual and inherent weakness in the personality of George William is also recognised, but the point is that if we mention any other cause than this last one, the remark loses its pertinence. An open-minded consideration of the various possibilities will bring out the difference between an explanation derived from the personality of George William and the above-mentioned first six explanations. As for the character of Schwarzenberg, it is probably true, as supported by the facts contained within this book, that all would have been well if the chief minister had been a great man. But the general history of Europe shows that able ministers were rare during this age, not nearly as numerous as able sovereigns. Hence, there is not any great likelihood that Prussia would find a man from non-royal ranks able to cope with the situation. Schwarzenberg favoured both Austria and the Catholic Party. As it turned out, this was a bad policy, since, in the hands of Austria, he was continually hoodwinked. But to mention this Roman Catholic allegiance as a cause of Prussia's downfall is not to the point. It is merely another way of saying that Schwarzenberg lacked discernment. A more able man might have known which party to favour, or perhaps it was unwise to favour the party. There is no way of telling. Perhaps a greater man, like Frederick William, who afterwards did actually become the nation's restorer, would have favoured neither party and built up his own integrity. As for the inefficiency of the estates, it is obviously true that if the estates had been sufficiently efficient, success would have stood in the place of failure. But here again there was little likelihood of a parliament at this time showing any concerted patriotism and organised intelligence. The same may be said about ministerial cabinets, and the question whether the advisers of the king should be blamed for their personal jealousies and lack of light. In the ordinary affairs of life, we are not interested in postulating a very improbable if, as a crucial explanation, in the turning point of a career. To take an extreme instance, if a man were about to fail in business, he would doubtless be saved if he discovered a gold mine in his backyard. That such remark would be inane. It would not be considered otherwise than, to the point, if someone should remark he might have been saved had his stepfather died one day earlier than his mother instead of a week later. The difference in interest in the two ifs lies in this, that the second chance is not so remotely improbable, it might easily have occurred. If the same way, even untoward and unexpected accident befalls a person, we then say, if this had not occurred, etc. In the ordinary affairs of life, common sense or unconscious knowledge of probabilities comes to our rescue. The fool is a person who lacks the ordinary sense of proportion and consequently makes the foolish remarks. Ordinary common sense will guide us up to a certain point in correctly allotting causes. 
there is a vast ground covered with entanglement and obscurity which can never be successfully plotted and measured by methods unsupported by the aid of instruments of precision it is here that statistical methods may properly be introduced in the example of the man about to enter bankruptcy our personal knowledge of the man himself may in some cases make us very sure just where the trouble lies but in other instances the circumstances are too complex it is a perfectly proper scientific question to inquire by statistical means how large a percentage of all business failures are due to incompetency how many are lack of capital panics or to exceptional accidents this has been done and is done continually by the commercial agencies other returns unnecessarily only an approximation although they don't help much in salient causes in the single instance they would help if it could be shown that any series of effects is very strongly correlated with any series of causes if for example all the men who failed once in business always failed again sooner or later and the type was found that always went steadily ahead it might be concluded that for practical purposes and broadly speaking the whole trouble lies always with the men themselves suppose for the sake of argument that a very high correlation were found not a perfect correlation of one represented by unity articles one point zero but one of say nine tenths r equals zero point nine we should then be able to conclude for the special instance if we knew nothing of the particulars of the merits or demerits of the case we could express our opinion as to the cause be guided in our expectations as to the future success of the individual in question and all with a judgment now strengthened by a sense of proportion found in probabilities in other words we depart from the position of the fool and his absurdly improbable suggestions as to causes and approach the position of wisdom just in proportion as we are able to measure and express probabilities in this way an expression of opinion that the cause of the first prussian downfall lay in the inherent weakness of the elector george william is a wiser remark than any other observation regarding the possible causes for the simple reason that this is the more probable there is more evidence that this factor in the tally might likely enough have been different and there is more evidence that if it had been different a changed condition would have resulted wisest view as to the major cause that his inherent weakness was a real trouble better than the view that the lack of education was to blame as a matter of fact george william did not have a poor education but supposing for the moment that his education had been neglected my reply is that there is no evidence that differences in education have produced measurable effects on the personalities of royalty some correlation may exist but this has not been proved as yet from general consideration derived from various indications and modes of reasoning this correlation is probably slight there is on the other hand a great deal of collected evidence demonstrating the strength and weakness in royalty has resulted from hereditary combinations of the gametes and is independent of ordinary environmental differences to summarize the conclusions the inherent personality of the elector is the most probable and most important cause this fits all the facts well there is nothing to be said against such a theory and the analogies of history hasten to lend support by proper pillar paul von reden's remote in time and place the generalization that weak kings are usually associated with weak periods is rendered probable by a variety of indications all pointing in the same direction these are discussed elsewhere now the generalization is correct for say ninety per cent of the instances then has nine chances in ten in this particular instance of being the primal cause no other isolated factor can stand up in the turmoil of hazard like this factor no other factor has been or is likely to be proved to be so reliable as this under all the complexities which necessary 
go to form the shifting drama of history therefore knowing nothing certain as to the finalities of the actual reign under discussion and remembering that no one can know in the intricacies of the single instance that might have been that might have followed interposed and postulated ifs the inherently weak nature of the elector remains as the best most probable and most important cause to discuss the relative importance of the other six causes would carry me beyond the retentions of this research but this specific illustration has shown that the important underlying causes in history are not necessarily so difficult to demonstrate even for limited errors in all attempts to unravel historical causation we must try to get explanations as far back as we can towards first causes the impossibility of ever actually arriving is no more a discouragement than in the domain of those sciences whose length of life has been longer and whose off-practice methods enable them to claim the adjective exact the complexity of history it is sometimes erroneously thought that because an effect is the complex result of a large number of interwoven causes it is hopeless to unravel the separate causes such may be true from the teleological point of view nothing can be further from the truth if the problem is looked at from the standpoint of everyday practice if a motor car suddenly stops the chauffeur is not concerned with final causes he searches the point or points that are not as far as they were before he searches for differences it is easy to give innumerable illustrations where practical problems of causation are made of problems of difference for instance the monetary value of introducing novelty of method into the management of a business corporation can be tested even though the intricacies of business management are infinitely complex let it be assumed that the factors a b c d e n are the same before and after the rest and that the novel factor x is the cause of any change which may be observed in strict truth a b c d e n never are at any successive period of time exactly the same but if they are nearly the same it may suffice of course if x is found to be small and the other factors a b c d e n are known for any reasons to change much then only doubt and confusion could come to the investigator as a result of his laborious search but in other cases x may be found large enough to be unmistakable a decision as to the significance and value of the results belongs to the problem itself there is no characteristic aspect to problems of history nothing inherent to separate them from problems of everyday life the idea of an express that history cannot be made of science that causes here cannot be properly sought for because the various factors a b c d e n do not remain the same is an ill-founded one in all the fluctuating realm of nature the subsidiary factors never do remain exactly the same even the best cases that one can think of the opinion that such and such a cause is the cause can be expressed only with a high degree of probability why did a certain man die he was killed in a railroad collision but how do we know that he did not die of some undeterminable bodily ailment just at the moment before the train was wrecked this is to the highest degree improbable so much so that we accept it as improbable to call the wreck the cause suppose it were a collision at sea and the man were drowned suppose the man were old and feeble and that some of the passengers in more robust health had been saved we should still be unanimous in ascribing his death to the collision if we had a belief drawn from the probabilities of the case that if this collision had not occurred he would have lived much longer ere long during the voyage the man's strength was declining 
the conditions were not the same at any two periods of time, but this change in the A, B, C, D, N factors do not prevent our calling X the new factor, the main cause. But it is easy to see that these cases would gradually merge into cases which would give to argument as to the main cause of death. For instance, if all the passengers were saved but one, and this one were in very poor health, say in a dying condition, and died during exposure, it might be difficult to decide whether his death ought to be ascribed to the shipwreck or not. It is just the same in dealing with historical causation. Some cases are impossible to separate, but other cases can be picked out as a real cause to a high degree of probability. It is not necessary that the series A, B, C, D, N should be exactly the same, any more than the questions of everyday life. It is only necessary that they should be probably approximated the same. The degree of this probability and of this approximation depends upon the necessities of the particular case. There is no inherent objection to the application of such method of history any more than is psychology. For history is, after all, nothing but past psychology. Matters of history, it is true, never repeat themselves. At the same time, is true of everything else. In every problem, the amount of accuracy required in the measurements depends upon the nature of the questions propounded. Many historians and economists have fallen into the error of supposing that the method of differences, as it is called by logicians, is not adapted to the historical and social sciences. In order to apply this method, they say that we must have two instances which tally in every particular, except the one which is the subject of inquiry. While this is true, if a very exact determination is required, it need not be read with such strict wording if a general and qualitative answer is wanted in the place of an exact and quantitative one. It is possible to imagine causes in which the expression tally in every particular except the one which is a subject of inquiry is made to read tally in most particulars except the one which is a subject of inquiry. Here, if the observed differences are comparatively great, we may be sure that the observed difference is a real cause of the result. Take, for instance, Mill's illustration of the failure of the method of differences to decide on the causative value of a protective tariff. It is true that it is impossible to find two nations which are exactly alike in every respect, except only in the presence or absence of a protective tariff. But if all the nations in the world had a high protective tariff, and one of them suddenly abolished it, and at the same time greatly declined or rose in economic strength in comparison with the others, we should be justified in postulating, as a hypothesis, the tariff change as the cause of the variation. If this were observed repeatedly, it would become more and more probable, even though all the nations differed in many particulars. The reliability of the conclusion would depend upon the magnitude of the change and the repetition of the observations, and might theoretically even become independent of the varying particulars within the nations themselves. The possibility of answering any problem of historical causation must be decided on its own merits. We cannot tell until we try. If the observed difference is small, we may be forced to abandon the analysis or inclined to give up the problem as affording too little certainty. If, however, a single observed difference be great, or better still, if a repetition of similar differences of considerable magnitude be found running through a long period of historical time, we may have such result which can be rightly made to mean only one thing. The dynamic factor which history presents is its strong point as compared with sciences like sociology, pedagogy and psychology, where the observations have been made only for a short time. The differences which permit history, running differences, one might call them, are very important, 
and has not been appreciated what a great boon this time element is to the historologist. Like the paleontologist, his record is often faulty in uncertain spots, but the wide sweeping curve over which he can view the panoramic changes makes it possible for him to see the trend of things and discover their causes in a way that would be impossible if we were obliged to concentrate his attention upon one age or one level of world strata. The time element of history, with its long series of repeated phenomena and its visible slowly moving points of change, outlawing broad curves of recognisable contour, often teaches more than is revealed within the limits of the story itself, for it often gives a hint of what is to come. Within Union Seminitae, saltations may be found, but in a larger way nature makes no sudden changes. The things which we still continue to be, though never just the same. Still, for a time the same phenomena will be likely to persist, and that is what gives a study of the past its practical value to the needs of the present, and default of better prophecy is claimed to be indicator of the tendencies of the future. The personal influence of a very few great men is a phenomenon that doubtless started at a far earlier date than I have traced in this volume. It was unmistakably a very great importance in Greece and Rome, even greater in Persia, Assyria, Babylonia, Jerusalem and Egypt. Just how far back into the past and in what neighbourhoods one must go to see the force at its maximum cannot be said. But there is every reason to suppose that, looking backwards into the origins of human society, there was a time when the force was not merely so great as it afterwards became. As the evidence stands, we may accept ten centuries in northwestern Europe as a low limit for the duration of the importance of this power of royal rather personal leadership. Most of the fourteen nations have not been tabulated for centuries earlier than the fifteenth, but the most cursory reading of the histories of earlier centuries shows the same coincidences. Though the obscurity and confusion make all but the most towering personalities and the most notable material changes difficult to distinguish and unsafe to measure. It is unlikely that a phenomenon which started as long ago as the 10th century and continued unabated in most countries until the end of the 18th should abruptly cease. The influence of monarchs in the 19th century must have been considerable. Napoleon, Alexander I of Russia, Leopold II of Belgium, Franz Joseph and the Kaiser William II are positive forces that need to be reckoned with as are the statesmen Bismarck, Gladstone, Disraeli, Salisbury, Cavour, and Metternich, while the negative side of the absence of a statesman of the first rank in minor and backward countries must also be taken into account in explaining political transformations. In many nations it would seem that the personality of the monarch is almost as important as ever. The facts brought forward in this volume must undoubtedly, to a considerable extent, support the view of history which attaches importance to the great man as a moulder of circumstances. The facts, more than anything else to my mind, prove that whatever be the mental differences between the ordinary man and the man of genius, the differences are of great importance if judged by the results of their power. It is not easy to measure mental differences except in terms of achievement, nor from the standpoint of history do we much care what the natural talents of men may have been if they have failed to put them to the practical test. If from the pragmatic standpoint men differ much among themselves, and a few men may rise very conspicuously out of the masses in some nations and at some periods, then how very important it becomes not to think and talk of any people as if the individuals were all alike. To speak of the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks and the English, without taking into account this question of intellectual and social variation within the nation, is a talk in the loosest and most confusing way. 
The Egyptians, as a whole, probably never had any high developed building instinct, though some of their rulers had. The Greeks, as a whole, may never have been artistic and intellectual, though a percentage certainly were. The Romans may never have had a special faculty for law and government. Such talents may have been confined to the patrician families. Indeed, the Roman people may never have declined for the simple reason that the Roman people may never have risen. The free citizens of Greece disappeared. They never were numerous. The Roman patrician families disappeared. They formed but a small proportion of the total population. The important point is that no investigations into the decline of countries can succeed without taking into account this matter of class differences and approximate distribution of intellectual qualities. Such distribution, if represented graphically, must in the nature of things be different for different nations, as there are no two leaves on the same tree alike, so no two national curves of this sort could be just alike. Our present knowledge does not allow us to draw these curves with all desired accuracy, but it does enable us to sketch three extreme types of curves, and these graphs will at least help to clarify much that I have had to say in former chapters and also aid in the explanation which I am about to offer for the rise of the Oriental monarchies of antiquity. If all the inhabitants of any community were made to stand in single file and a line were drawn along the tops of their heads, such a line would trace a curve something like half of a very broad bell, figure one. Intellectual stature, natural ability, or ability judged by achievement, we may be sure, would also give a curve of the same general shape that we do not know just what its precise form would be. Displayed on the page is figure 1 and figure 2. Curved lines. Figure 1 displaying dwarfs, the masses, and giants relative on the bell curve, and figure 2 displaying the same curve labelled N, M, and L. One way to gain some insight into the form of the curve for any one historical period is to measure the importance of a few leaders as against the masses. If the nation has gained ground without the leadership of such men, then there is not much rise to the curve at the right as compared with the centre. Curves LL or NN express the distribution. Where the converse is true, then the few are much above the masses and the curve MM is fulfilled. Figure 2. For the period of history covered in this volume, Spain, Portugal, Turkey and indeed most European countries will conform more to type MM, while Great Britain, since the 17th century, will be represented by the line NN, with perhaps a greater percentage of defectors and dependents. With perhaps a greater percentage of defectors and dependents, certainly a higher position of the masses, and a more gradual rise in the curve towards the right. The lower line LL represents the middle distribution in savage tribes, a stage of evolution where hunting and fishing are the sole or chief means of livelihood. An example is furnished by the North American Indians of the United States at the time of the arrival of the Europeans. Nor for the tropics, no great civilizations so-called were found, no dynasties, no great kings, no men very much raised above their fellows, but all very much alike and all possessing such skill and force as gave them adaptation to a life in the wilderness. In the regions to the south, on the contrary, in the warm lands of Mexico, Central America and Peru, complex civilization had been established and powerful monarchs ruled over widely extended political groups and controlled the lives of myriads of people. The type of curve representing their state of society is of the order MM. 
Now it requires very little historical observation to see that the first great civilizations of antiquity found their cradles in the warm and fertile regions of the globe, within the tropics or near the tropics, always where the cultivation of the soil was easy, and particularly in broad river valleys like the Nile, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Furthermore, all these earliest civilizations, as far back as one can trace them by their monuments, even to their earliest beginnings, are always found under the control of dynasties of reigning monarchs. My hypothesis to account for both the appearance of the civilizations and the evolution of monarchical governments is as follows. Whether men first originated in that part of the world where the Indian Ocean is now, or somewhere else, it is certain that he first made his appearance in a warm country, also must have from the first lived in groups or gregarious bands. As he multiplied and pressed farther and farther into the cooler regions, not only would the more ambitious and energetic be the ones to depart, but long generations of life in the more rigorous climates would, by natural selection, cause an increase of the attributes, ambition and energy. Man would become adapted to the hunter stage of civilization, to living in small groups of tribes. Such a condition may be pictured for Central Asia and Europe during long eons of time. If any of these northern peoples returned to the tropical river valleys, they would be able to conquer races that had never left the tropics. Races that had never by natural selection acquired the qualities of ambition and energy. They would either exterminate the inferior tropical races or would bring them into slavery. In any event, there would then take place a new set of changes, causing a differentiation of all the people. Change from the type represented by the curve LL into that represented by the curve MM. It is not that the Northerns arrived in the valleys of the Nile, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the fertile regions of America, already men of genius, already capable of controlling vast armies, constructing great monuments and predicting the movements of the stars. But it is that only in such regions could the evolution speedily take place of castes mentally alert and superior to the masses, castes from which men of genius would be likely to arise. The change with the community from type LL to MM is the kernel of the whole explanation. The reason for this change lies, 1. In conditions of the climate and soil making agriculture easy, 2. In the accumulation of wealth, 3. In legitimacy of descent, 4. In sexual selection, 5. In mental inheritance. In the hunter state of society, the accumulation of wealth is not easy. Meat and fish soon spoil. There is no service to be striven for among the different members of the group. No property to be handed on to the next generation no rights in land and buildings, cattle, corn and slaves. But in a fertile agricultural country, all these forms of wealth may become the objects of the fiercest warfare. The tropical man, strictly speaking, the Ethiopian, does not now, nor did he ever, exert himself to acquire wealth. Wealth has no meaning for him. He is not wanted, would not know what to do with it if he had it. He prefers his simple cabin and his life of good-natured ease. Warfare is between one tribe and another, not intertribal. It has been wrongly thought that this laziness and indifference of the tropical man is caused by the direct effect of the warm climate, but this cannot be true. It is not the direct, but rather the indirect effect of the climate. A question of natural selection is because none of his ancestors ever lived for long periods of time where natural selection could produce the opposite qualities. This must be so, for otherwise how are we to account for the fact that in the hot climates there was at one time so much activity Indeed, the earliest of the great mental awakenings of humanity, the beginnings of a recorded history of architecture and of accumulative thought. 
given a set of people now possessing ambition and energy and in a territory where the accumulation of wealth is a natural phenomenon there will inevitably take place a struggle even if the people differ very little among themselves there will necessarily be some more serious than others to acquire and more able than others to have and to hold some will get more than their share and as soon as this indifference begins it at once becomes self-accelerating and for the following reasons when the possibilities of a mass permanent wealth are introduced into the life of a community and some men are acquiring more than others since life is short and none carry wealth beyond the grave there soon arises a desire to bequeath this wealth to the close of kin in the next generation in the earliest form of society a loose relationship suffices descent of rights through the mother or through the sister suffices but with greater property comes greater desire to know the exact relationships and the father wishes to know his own son to whom he will leave his accumulated wealth this means the beginning of family in the modern sense with legitimacy of descent through the male lines in other words father right takes the place of mother right as soon as property is transmitted and some fathers of families possess more wealth and power than others and some sons and daughters are prospectively the heirs to more property than others there will naturally arise a desire on the part of parents to unite their children in marriage with the children of other rich men the ambitious will be more inclined than the unambitious to seek such unions the ambitious and energetic are on the whole the ones who have succeeded most signally in acquiring the property probably the more ambitious on the whole the more able whether or not this last statement is true certainly those who have most acquired property will on the average be the ones most endowed with ability so to acquire it no matter how much a question of good luck may enter into their success good luck will have to balance bad luck in a large number of cases and the most successful will have to average the higher intelligence as far as intelligence means the practical acquisition of wealth and power as the richer and more intelligent families will by the force of marriage unions sexual selection be brought together while the poor and less successful will be left to marry among themselves when the rich and successful men were giving in marriage their sons and daughters to the sons and daughters of other successful men they were seeking immediate advantage for their family and they were really raising their families more than they supposed for they were introducing the possibilities of new hereditary variations around higher levels it is true that all the children of such sector unions would not equal their parents some would revert to the general average level but some would even exceed in natural aptitude the average of their parents thus in each succeeding generation on the average there would be some whose natural ambitions and ability to hold and control large fortunes would exceed any who had lived in the previous generations the individual exceptions to this tendency will make no difference except to delay their progress the whole matter hinges on the question of mental hereditary if mental qualities are inherited in the same way and to the same degree as physical then this process of differentiation must take place wherever there is a large community and wealth is sought for in a state of civilization where sympathy and charity are at a minimum there soon becomes no room for a man who is not of either lower or the higher caste the people of the lower caste are allowed to remain because they are willing to serve their masters any men of the middle class who become pretentious are ruthlessly cut off the process works towards forming more and more a caste small in number and smaller percentage to the total population but at the same time the point of power and intellect more and more raised above the general population the high wave once formed a struggle within the superior caste for it must be remembered that these are the people most ambitious and grasping tend towards the survival of only a few 
and lastly one family of the royal dynasty those willing to serve the dynasty and the ruling order of society as the monarchs which lieutenants soldiers and priests are allowed to survive in the curve mm with his aristocracy of the intellect is formed in the course of time there are so few persons in the extreme upper caste and the whole nation is so dependent on their guidance that a new danger is introduced the whole had been formed into a sort of waterspout structure the slender point of which growing higher and higher and narrower and narrower is liable to break this is just what has happened so often in history the whole civilization of the nation depending on the brain power of a few persons soon passed away when those few were destroyed such i believe to be the true account of all the earliest states of civilization and such was to a considerable extent the supposed strength of spain and portugal and several other nations of more recent times though their dynasties were not self-engendered out of native stock these latter dynasties like all other modern european dynasties were evolved out of the germanic races norsemen scandinavians saxons etc the same five forces led to the same series of social and intellectual differentiations the waterspout formation with the governing caste more and more elevated in natural ability at the same time fewer and fewer not in actual numbers but in percentage of the whole population this phenomenon did not take place in the north any more than it did in the south until the people passed from the hunting stage to the agricultural stage until accumulated wealth became an object for intra-tribal competition it was so and later in the north because agriculture was more difficult the curve also started in the southern countries from probably a higher general level that is the great mass of the people in germanic and northwestern countries had even before the days when agriculture became the chief source of wealth already acquired much in the way of mental alertness and instincts of industry and ambition on the whole it seems probable that the curve for modern europe at the present time is more of the order in n than mm at least in comparison with the civilizations of antiquity just why it is so we do not know but it is perfectly clear there are always at work two sets of forces one which we may call the aristocratic force tend towards the formation of mm the other which we may call the democratic tend to reduce the curve the democratic force is made up for the most part of impulses belonging to the milieu to ideas institutions combinations the part of proletariat revolutions diffusion of rights of suffrage amidst to the great extent of education it is not the province of the present book to discuss this the environmental side of the question but as a generalized conclusion from the facts here collected and reviewed that as far as a greater portion of human history is concerned this leveling tendency cannot have equaled its opposing force for how otherwise could the supremely important few have been engendered the aristocratic force is made up of impulses lying in the germplasm its consequences have been continually coming to the force no matter what may be the form of government nor how much the laws of man give power in theory to the people as long as sexual selection tends to mate like with like just so long the laws of mental rivalry will walk towards the formation of governing classes inherently superior to the sons of other men universal suffrage and universal education the most carefully equalized scheme of social opportunity cannot prevent this tendency of the homogeneous to pass into the heterogeneous the splitting of mankind into sub-varieties castes and breeds it is part of the trend of organic evolution nor does all this fail to have a significance in relation to the future it is probable that the separation of castes is increasing rather than diminishing at the present day in all european countries and especially the united states where the opportunities for acquiring wealth are particularly abundant historical science can scarcely at present predict the future but it can interpret the past if the work of the world had been initiated 
and directed by a few very great men. Here these men are the predetermined products, not of outward but of inward differences. The true interpretation of history must hinge upon the gametes, and the laws of history will be found to be but a part of the laws which govern all organic life. End of section 19